then, then my late husband. Uh, Frank, Frank had a motto, if you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. You want to be really miserable, think what's owed to you. Hello and welcome to Manipause.com, our Manipod series on podcasts with today's guest, Mitzi Perdue. Mitzi is an award-winning writer, journalist, and all-around great person. We love her to death. And, you know, what, the one thing that I do want to mention, she's an anti-human trafficking advocate, and we will get into that on another segment. We're going to talk about Relentless today, which is a book that Mitzi just wrote about our great friend, Mark Victor Hansen. So welcome, Mitzi. Oh, perfect joy to be with you. And, and I love your premise, menopause. Yay. <laughs> yes. Do you think men go through menopause in life? Uh, <laughs> I think that's, that, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah, just a quick background. You went to Harvard undergrad and George Washington University for graduate school. My daughter went to GW as well. Ooh, yeah. um, and, um, and so you've done so many things in your life, but right now we want to kind of talk about your writing. And one of the first books that, uh, that you wrote was about your, uh, husband Frank Purdue uh, called Tough Man Tender Chicken and there's some interesting uh, background on that and for those of us that lived on the East Coast back then I mean I absolutely remember his commercials every Purdue chicken has one of these tags on it and every Purdue chicken part has one of these tags on it they mean you're getting fresh tender tasty young chicken I make sure of that because both of these tags have my name on them. And right under my name is my money back guarantee. Believe me, when it comes to chicken, I'm tougher than you are. Uh, and they, they were amazing. And I know there's a little segment in your book about how he, uh, he came up with the idea of doing the marketing the way he did the marketing, because there were tons of chicken companies out there. And yet he managed to find a way to be unique to sell his chickens. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, I'd like nothing more. <laughs> Purdue, uh, when he started, he was one of 5,000 chicken growers in this area. And yet he ended up today, his company is in the top three in the United States. And how did he get from here to there or from there to here? The way he did it is he realized that he wanted to differentiate himself from the others by having a superior product. So he was all for getting the best birds, feeding them right and all of that, but that's expensive. And so he reasoned, I have to charge more for my chickens. Who will buy them if they don't know why they're better? And so he just made the connection. You got to advertise, you got to speak with, uh, with, the, with the urban public who's going to be buying the chickens. And so he did something that had actually, it was groundbreaking what I'm about to describe. He decided to advertise a commodity. And by the way, nobody had done that before. The, the, the received wisdom is that if you advertise a commodity like chicken, uh, you're gonna benefit everybody else. Maybe the whole world will buy more chicken, but how are you gonna get them to buy Purdue chicken? And you know, this is a problem, right? Right. Yeah, for sure. Right. Okay. so. Uh, he, he did something that no 
chicken person farmer had ever done before. He spent, I think it was like eight weeks in New York, full time, total immersion, learning about advertising. And <clears throat> what finally made advertising a commodity work is, after interviewing something like 60 different copywriters, one of them came up with a thought that you might think was insulting, but Frank loved it. The copywriter, Ed McCabe said, you look like a chicken, you squawk like a chicken, <laughs> and you relate to your product. So if you're, if you're advertising chicken, people will think of you. And so you know, when, when, when he first started, it looked as if, as if it was crazy. I mean, his first ad, he, he unveiled it in front of hundreds of, of PR experts in New York, you know, spending a fortune doing it. And I've talked with people who were there and they all said it was a catastrophe. It was like a funeral. They liked Frank, but they thought that he had just slipped a gear, that he had spent all this <laughs> money for no purpose. And then they were all shocked because in a matter of weeks, people were talking about it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. Wow, that, that's that, a great story. Yeah, and that it, it is advertising and marketing that lifted him from the 5,000 competitors to what became number three. Wow, that's great. Now, your background, you grew up uh, in, in, I don't want to say wealth, but well, you're, you're, life of oh, luxury. <laughs> life of luxury. Okay, your your father was the co-founder and president of Sheraton Hotels. Now, did you guys live in a hotel, or did you just visit? Uh, how did that work? How did how did your how did growing up with that kind of uh, royalty help? How about filthy stinking rich? There you go. You know what? I love that. You can say that. I didn't want to. You know. And yet yeah, you I was kind of guessing that, that you can't say it, but I can. Now, at the time of his death, he owned 400 hotels. This was not a poor man. Yeah. However, uh, first to answer your question, I spent a lot of time in hotels because he would travel with his family and there were, you know, he'd visit all the hotels. So I got to see a lot of presidential suites. Woohoo! However, <laughs> he had a very strong belief that he didn't want to spoil his children. And my mother was certainly on board with that. So we actually lived on a farm in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Uh, I grew up shoveling out manure from horses and we, we had, let's see, we had pigs, we, uh, we grew corn, um, I had chores. And I, I think I, I think it was about 12 when I got the first clothes that weren't hand-me-downs. I, wow. I had four older wow. brothers and sisters and since father didn't want spoiled children and mother didn't either, if we wanted something, we were told, earn it. And we also went to, we being my brothers and sisters and I, we also went to public schools. We went to a combination of both. In the end, like for preparing for college, private school, but we also went to public schools because, and you know, I, I think it was just so wise of him because we could have grown up in a bubble of wealth and you know, it was certainly part of it. But we also, I mean, like my best friend at age 12 was the daughter of a dairy farmer. Uh, other friends were, you know, somebody who worked behind the jewelry counter at, well, I can't remember the name of the store, Gilchrist perhaps. But I, I, I loved that, that our parents put a lot of effort into trying to prepare us eh, to live outside the bubble. That's and, great. Um, 
I, I can't swear that they achieved it, but I can swear that. Well, you, you're I, certainly no Paris Hilton, so that's a good thing. Um, uh, I'll take that. Actually, I'd love to meet her because I think she's about as beautiful as they make them. And true, she's but a lot with her life, but boy, did we ever take different approaches. To yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. exactly. I mean, that that's a very nice, humble uh, um, childhood that, that probably kept you grounded more than it might have had they had they not uh, uh, done that, which is great. Well, okay, a quick story, and if, if some of my friends hear this, I'll get in trouble, but... <laughs> Good. But I can think, I, for example, I love using the subways. I have girlfriends uh, of the debutante variety who wouldn't go in a subway. And I, and I always go economy class. And my reason why is that, uh, say, say I'm just back from Ukraine. If I went, if I went first class, it would be about ten thousand dollars. By going economy class, it's a thousand dollars means nine thousand dollars that's available for me to give to charity good point well that's 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 really great that yeah. is great. well so, okay, that, that's my parents but, but i've got to tell you that the purdue family is the same way uh frank purdue was totally against uh, ostentation and when we traveled together this is a man who you know he would he pretty much founded and was head of a fortune 500 size company we went in the economy class because he he and the family just doesn't see the point of of spending money when you're going to get there just as fast economy and that plus frank was extremely interested in uh in interacting with with the average kind of person who would be buying his chicken so i i have a bet nobody can disprove it so i'm going to win this bet but <laughs> i bet you that Frank knew the New York subway system better than than almost any New Yorker. I mean, because that's how we always got around. And he, oh, he, and for that matter, we also knew the subway systems of Tokyo, Moscow, Paris, London, because he, like my dear father, uh, wanted to be as much outside the bubble as it's possible if you're, you know, your nice, friendly neighborhood billionaire. Right. That, that's that's great to hear. It really is. Um, let's talk about um, your rice growing. Now you are a rice grower and and the president of the the agriculture, the American Agriculture for Women uh, organization. Agrowomen and agrowomen okay. in agriculture. Mm -hmm. And I bet you're about to ask me how how's a nice goer like me end up being a rice grower? Wow, right. you're a clairvoyant too. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that was the next question. That's great. Gosh, I love it that you laugh. Yay! Yeah. Because I'm being a, a bit outrageous, but here goes. Um, okay, so I was a Boston debutante, uh, but my father died at age when I was 27. And it was unexpected. He died at 70 years old, heart attack, poof. And nobody expected him to go that quickly, hmm. uh, which meant that suddenly at age 27, uh, I have a great big inheritance. But since my brothers and sisters and I had all been brought up with the idea of being frugal and that we're stewards, that we're not there to buy yachts and racehorses, uh, what I did with it was, I was living in California at the time, it occurred to me that to be a steward, I could just put it in the stock market, but it would be much more interesting to put it in agricultural land. Living in California, 
Davis, California, which is very much an agriculture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I spent four years taking courses in things like rural appraisal, agronomy, uh, agricultural accounting. And at the end of four years, and probably looking, I'm going to guess, 40 different farms, uh, I put my inheritance, or at least a good bit of it, into farmland. And smart boy, idea. Did it? That's great. That's great. Yeah. I mean, imagine you you can sort of have a feel for that agriculture is really important today. Uh, you know, prices going up and on and on. Uh, back in '74, I don't think everybody was focusing on the value of farmland. So I bought land, good lord, for like seven hundred dollars an acre that. In years later, I haven't followed it for the last 20 years, but 20 years ago, that land was worth 30,000 an acre. Wow. This, this was top prime agricultural land. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, that, see, and that's, um, uh, it's, it, it's an interesting concept, I think, for most people, because not every uh, rich person, particularly people who for Filthy lack street, of a better word rich was was the operative word yeah Filthy yeah street. not every stinking rich person especially people who are trust fund kind of people right are guilty yeah no. yeah who think think the way you think i mean we we've had some uh experience with that in the neighborhood that we used to live in and they tend to be quite uh, selfish and uh and and demeaning uh, as if they had earned that money. And so the, the way you did things in terms of going out and, and, and reinvesting your money in meaningful things, I think is a real eye-opener for people. And I, hopefully our audience is going to appreciate how different that is than, than a lot of the people that we see out there. Well, mm -hmm. allow me to give a great big plug for both my father and my late husband. Yeah. Uh, I remember my father told me once it was... I was, I could have been eight or nine or 10 or something. It was a Saturday, a beautiful summer Saturday. And there he was in his office in our home, uh, going through ledgers and books and correspondence. And I asked him, you know, you, you could be out playing golf with your friends. What are you doing? And he said, I'm looking through charitable requests. And he said, and then he told me the, the point of this story. He said, the greatest pleasure my money ever gave me was in giving it away. Wow. Oh, yeah, see, that's, that's great. great. Okay, that then, so then my late husband. Uh, Frank, Frank had a motto. If you want to be happy, think what you can do for somebody else. You want to be really miserable, think what's owed to you. Is that not nice. good? Yeah, it's beautiful. It's Better beautiful. to give than to receive, as they say, right? right? Well, I'll right. share with you my motto. Okay. Gosh, I'm being pushy. Do you forgive me? No, no you, we oh, love absolutely. It. <laughs> You're the guest. You get to say whatever you want. Oh, that means I get to take advantage of everything. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My own motto is that success is measured not by what you can get, but by what you can give. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Perfect. You know, I, uh, I, I agree. I think, um, it, you know, uh, we don't want to use up too much of your time. So we want to get to your latest book, and you've written several books. We talked about Tough Man, Tender Chicken. I know you wrote one called The Farmer's Cookbook and stuff, but uh, you have a new one out now called Relentless, which uh, is uh, has just been released. 
And so we, we want you to tell our audience a little bit about not only what, what it's about, but what motivated you to write it. It's about Mark Victor Hansen, who I bet a lot of you know, and it's possible that you might not know that you know him. Mark Victor Hansen is the co-author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. And he's in the Guinness Book of World's Records, along with his co-author, for selling more books, more nonfiction books than anybody else on the planet. It's half a billion books. And I, I became friends with him. Uh, I don't know how it happened, because I look up to him so much, I'm, I'm almost tongue-tied in his presence. But nevertheless, uh, we often talk on the phone. And one day I asked, Mark, I'm a writer. Has anybody ever written a book? A biography view and he said no and I said what would you think of it and he agreed that he would go along with it and I I, I wanted to write the book because Mark is oh, he, he may be the, the wisest person I've ever met and also I, I think it's it's a close race between him and my father and uh, my late husband for being benevolent for really wanting to help the world and I thought, wouldn't it be great to write a book sharing his wisdom, some of the things that made him so much of success. And I interviewed, I think it's around 100 people, uh, people who loved him, people who had been tangled in lawsuits with him, uh, people who knew him when he was close to suicidal and bankrupt. So I think it's, you know, my opinion of my own work, eh, this is really <laughs> presumptuous, but I think that anybody who reads that book is going to be energized, uplifted, and maybe inspired to go a little bit further in their life because you know, he, he had the downs and the ups. Mm -hmm. He's he's a great guy. I met him just recently and Larry, both, both uh, Larry and I did a podcast with him and he is an inspiration. He is a jewel. This guy is, he's your best friend instantly. And he will call you and text you and and turn you on to people like you, right? Where where we met you through through Mark, and he's introduced us to several great people. Um, and so, yeah, he's that kind of guy that instantly uh, is your friend, and you feel it, right? And he makes yeah, and he really cares about you, and he wants what's best for you, right? right. Yeah, some of the people who've read the book, like like one guy who's a business guru, uh, Summers. White. He said it's the best business book I've ever read. Hmm. But I've also had other people say it's the most inspirational book they've ever read. Hmm. Now, I've had people say it's a, a page turner, uh, that they couldn't put it down, that it changed their lives. It's, uh, you know, I'm pretty happy with this book. Oh, yeah. I started to read it, and I think Larry's read a little bit more than myself. Uh, it, it's very, very good, and, and you can't put it down. You know, it's just wow this is this is a great book so yeah we, we will definitely be promoting it and we we love talking about you know people like you who are an ins inspiration to you know our viewers and and we we really appreciate you taking the time to talk about that and your life and when we come back we're going to have a part two to this because we want to talk about your anti-human trafficking advocacy uh, as well as your trip to Ukraine, which is well, eye-opening. I jump in because you've already agreed that I'm the guest and I can do this. <laughs> uh, I, I, I have a segue for you for the, for the future uh, program that we're going to do. Okay. That is 
Uh, every penny of the profits or the royalties for our, the book Relentless and Mark Victor Hansen, every bit of that's going to anti-human trafficking. Wow, that's wow, awesome. that's awesome. Well, that's yeah. great. So, um, thank you for for starting us off here in this first segment, and uh, you know we encourage everybody to watch the next one, which is going to be about uh, um, Mitzi's efforts to stop human trafficking and all the different things she's doing in the organizations that she's involved with. So thanks Mitzi for part one here and we'll talk to you soon. I look forward to it.